Your ears do not deceive you. You've just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Hello and welcome to Comic Book Yeti's Cryptid Creator Corner. I am one of your hosts, Jimmy Gasparro, and I am here uh, with a writer who I believe some of his work uh, has been reviewed on Comic Book Yeti previously. Maybe we'll talk about that because he has written some very fun and interesting comics. But we are here to talk about his newest comic uh, that he has created. Um, It's coming out August 16th is issue number one through Scout Comics. Uh, it's created with Eric Whalen. It's Orson Welles, Warrior of the Worlds. Uh, please welcome to the podcast writer, Milton Lawson. Milton, how are you doing tonight? Hello there. I'm doing fantastic. Um, I got to go see my favorite baseball team last night for free, and we ended up winning. So, hey, I was, um, I'm in a good mood. Great. Great. And who is your, uh, I, I think I saw this before, your, your favorite baseball team. What is it? The, uh, is it the Astros? Yes, the dreaded, hated Astros. I'm one of those fans. Um, I go back way back uh, to the 70s with those guys. So um, I, I was a long-suffering fan before we won and then cheated and then won again. So, <laughs> Well, you know, um, I don't know. What are you going to do? I, as, as you're enjoying yourself, that, that's all that matters. And hey, getting to go, yeah. go into a game for free. I mean, there's, there's nothing better when somebody offers me Phillies tickets. Oh yeah. Um, oh, I didn't know. realize you were a Phillies fan. Oh yeah. My, my <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's all right. It's all right. It was very, very exciting last year. It's less so this year, but you know, um, I still like going. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so, well, let's, uh, let's just dig right into it. Let's just start Orson Welles, warrior of the worlds. Um, I, I got to see the ash can of it, which I think folks can get now on Scout mm-hmm. Comics. And you were kind enough to send a preview of um, issue one. And and I wanted to ask first, because I wasn't sure, is it is this going to be coming out in issues or is this a graphic novel? It's going to be coming out in issues. It's going to be a seven-issue series. Oh, wow. And, uh, issue one, like you said, is in August. And Scout does this thing where they give the retailers a little bit of time to figure out what the support level of a book is. So there's going to be like a two month gap between issue one and issue two. And then the plan is just to be monthly from then on out until we have the big, uh, the big finale. Oh, okay. Um, All right. So by the time this episode's coming out in early July, folks will be able to order it through their, you know, their LCS, their local comic shop. Um, But yeah, I, I really like the ash can, which kind of gives a good, a sense, but you know, um, a little bit of the flavor of it in terms mm-hmm. of the science fiction nature of it. And issue one, I just, I, I loved how like issue one kind of uh, revealed itself. Because um, there, to, I'm, I've seen a handful of Orson Welles films. Um, you know, I've I've seen Citizen Kane a, a, enough to have. Uh, um, Unfortunately, forgotten uh, most of it, but but uh, I I, ne- I need a, a rewatch. Um, but the, to me, there were a lot of hallmarks of some of Orson Welles' films or references to it, or at least people in his real life, because this is kind of an odd, you know, a mix of real events and like a a fictionalized story. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I just I I really re- I really enjoyed it um, oh, a lot. You. Thank you. Um. It's kind of what was like, you know, what was the the approach to it using 
the the 19 what is it 38 were the world's radio broadcast yeah and how did you get into it to kind of like figure out this is a story like you wanted to tell and the mix of completely fictionalized but maybe taking some details from Orson Welles real life yeah um it's interesting because i i'm i'm a huge wells fan citizen kane is my favorite film of all time and so I was probably destined to do something with Wells. In fact, I, I did a short story that was in a anthology where people took road trips with famous people. And um, I would have chosen Wells for mine, but the editor of the series had already chosen him. I'm like, oh, okay. So I chose someone else. And then that, that editor dr- dropped out of the book and the Wells story mm-hmm. never got done. So thankfully for me, instead of a little short story about, you know, an eight page road trip with Orson Welles. Right. You know, five years later, lightning strikes me with this idea and idea is like, well, what if that radio prank wasn't a prank? Right. What if if it was real? Right. And then I extrapolated out from there. um, And when you, when you talk about the mix between the fiction and the real um, two, two notes about that. Number one, Wells himself um, is, is quite a fascinating figure on that very question. Um, he, he was a magical storyteller, uh, both in terms of his craft as a, a professional thespian, filmmaker, radio guy. But he's also a bit of a fabulous, too. And not a, tr- you know, not a reliable narrator on the details of his own life. He would, he would constantly reinvent things and pad things. Um, and so I wanted to play with that a little bit. Um, and the approach tries to be everything we know about his real life actually really happened. And everything that we fictionalized is kind of in the gaps. Right. Between the things we never saw. Yeah. Well, I really liked how some like real people who I wasn't expecting, you know, because I had no, no expect with the Ashcan, I had no expectation how, um, issue one would begin. And I, I don't want to give away anything except to say, you know, whatever you want to talk about or, and feel comfortable with. But I really like how the story of Wells kind of develops. Um, the beginning of it is a, a little bit of um, uh, the one character, Paula, who is kind of like tracking down little clues and details of, of Wells' life. And I just, I, I really like how the, the mystery of it kind of unspooled and, you know, when the science fiction elements really hit and hit hard. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was fascinating. I really enjoyed it. Um, oh, thank you, thank you. Especially a couple of, you know, uh, one or two references to, to Wells, maybe voicing a, a robotic planet <laughs> that I was, <laughs> yes. I mean. Um, <laughs> Had to put that in there. I, that, I, you know, it uh, maybe a sad footnote that that's you know one of the last uh one of orson wells last credits was to voice um no the, the name of the planet just went right out of my head in the in the transformers movie um yeah unicron unicron yeah <laughs> um but i yeah i just really like how how it it all developed and uh eric whalen is the artist on it and some of the likenesses of the older wells are unbelievable um, yeah, yeah. I Old just Wells love those. Has a certain gravity about him that's that just really translates. 
Yeah, and I mean it's it it, it, it is such an accurate uh, depiction of him. Um, I just thought you know that was incredible. Uh, so yeah. I really like that a lot. I was very fortunate uh, for Eric to uh, continue on with the project because the poor man only signed up to do ten paint. The original version of this project was going to be sort of a jam piece with different artists doing different chapters. Oh, okay. And so he he signed up for a 10-page thing. And that version of the project ultimately didn't come to fruition, kind of rebooted it, and uh, asked him if he would do the whole thing. And he foolishly said yes. <laughs> and here we are <laughs> a few, many years later, and he's still laboring. Uh, on the and the page count keeps piling up on him, right? Um, and he has he has yet to punch me, um, so I appreciate that. Well, but, that's good that nothing has come to violent yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so there's there's a bit of distance, yes, uh, yes. between you. Yeah, I mean, I really liked it. I thought the art was striking. Um, it, uh, really, even some of the more like static scenes of like talking heads, I found like endlessly like fascinating. There's a lot of stuff in the background to go over. Yeah. Um, so I really like that, you know, in terms of your process and, and take, and we see this a lot with comic creators. If you, you have an idea and it's one thing and then, you know, it doesn't work out that anthology doesn't happen. This story doesn't work out this pitch mm -hmm. and you have to kind of, you know, turn it into something else. Um, were you kind of always prepared to possibly do that with this? Or like, what was that positioning like when you're like, oh, I have this 10 page thing, oh, but now I have an opportunity to expand it to, I mean, talking seven issues. So what, over 140, 150 pages is quite a big difference. Like, were yeah. you always kind of prepared for that or was... No, I sort of punted all of these things to be like, oh, that's a problem for later. That's a problem for later. Okay. Like, I. I I had the structure and knew that I wanted to homage certain Wells events and or films. And I picked out a lot of artists that fit those styles said, okay, these are my benchmarks. And then I'll play to, you know, whatever will work in that moment. And I was going to simultaneously write all the chapters, which I'm so glad didn't happen. Um, and when we rethought it, um, we restructured it with a proper outline and a little bit of the episodic nature of it. Um, weirdly enough, um, in the issues version went away because originally it was going to be a graphic novel and each chapter was very distinct with different artists. But now that we have this larger story canvas to tell, it all just sort of bled together and the, the references aren't as rigidly, you know, siloed out. Okay. And so um in terms of changing the the structure of it then um yeah I, I would have to think that you would need a really strong outline especially when you're kind of going back and forth like in time um you know mm -hmm. to to different periods to make sure that like you know everything's straight in terms of continuity and I I bet that's a, an issue you know since comics is a visual medium for Eric as well to you yeah. know in terms of matching things up um, because are you kind of, I don't know if you want to say this kind of staying within the same couple of time periods, or are we going to vi be visiting all throughout, you know, Wells's life from, I guess the late thirties, you know, through the eighties. So this is, this is no spoiler, um, because it's page one. Um, we, we span basically, um, his entire 
career. We page one is a direct homage to Citizen Kane, the beginning of Citizen Kane, the central figure dies in Orson Welles' Warrior of the Worlds on page one, Orson Welles dies. So um, we fill in the gaps of everything that leads up to that moment. And there was a lot of restructuring beyond just the original to, to what we have now with the seven issue series. At one point, um, we were even considering it being a 12 issue series. Um, and that is the story that I'm telling. It is the 12 issue version, but we've compressed it a bit. And some of these issues are pretty big. Some of these issues are like 32 and 36 pages. Oh, so, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it, you're going to get a lot of bang for your buck. Yeah. On almost every one of these issues. Um, and thankfully, um, you know, I have a pretty encyclopedic knowledge of of his filmography and career. And when we had to do the accordion of expanding and compressing certain things, I can immediately do the math in my head like, okay, we can lose this, we can lose this, add this, you know. Um, right. So it, if this was a totally fictionalized thing, I probably would have been sunk. But since it's based on at least the <laughs> spine of something that I'm aware of, it, right. it made it a lot easier. So what was kind of like the, uh, I guess, the start of your interest or love, if if that's the right word, or fascination, appreciation of, of Orson Welles in, in terms of as like a filmmaker? Is it something you were experienced like young, like the first time you saw Citizen Kane, or is it something you came to later? I mean, okay. I know that you uh, are a big film fan, a cinephile, if you will. And yeah. that story you talked about earlier that you wanted to do Orson Welles, it's it's great, the road trip one, because you do Roger Ebert. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That uh th that worked worked out fortunately because that turned out to be uh, pretty much the thing I'm most proud of that I've done thus far. I think when the Wells full seven issues is done and wrapped, I'll probably consider that my favorite thing. But yeah, the the Ebert thing was was a fortunate uh side. Uh, journey as well but yeah you you nailed it um i was young and i saw citizen kane for the first time in a movie theater on a 35 millimeter print um a local theater was just showing a um you know uh, a, a retrospective viewing of it and it was at that perfect time um to where i was old enough to understand the more adult themes um but young enough to to just be also new and you know wells kind of announces himself to you when you're seeing that film you can't help but be aware of a creative vision behind that camera behind the entire process and the production and i was i was just so blown away by it and i i, I had to research and find out more about this person and a lot of times you know if you like you got a band you like and they're influenced by somebody else it's usually kind of a bit of a letdown or it's a, a brief journey. And then what ends up happening with Wells is, you know, he's still a, a fountain of all kinds of mysteries. And, you know, we're only just now getting to see some of his unfinished films. You know, it was just about like three years ago that the, the other side of the wind finally came out. Um, and so it was this legendary film that was sitting in canisters in some, uh, you know, abandoned storage facility, and there was there was rights disputes between the estate and another estate, and some 
high up government officials in Iran. And it's just like, where are we going to be able to see this thing? You know, so right. Even though he had already, you know, been dead for so many years, it it, it almost like he was still a contemporary figure with layers to discover about him. Right. Wow. But I'm. I mean, I've. I mean, I've. I love Citizen Kane too. Like I said, I've watched it enough and haven't watched it in a while, so probably do a rewatch. But um. I mean, I've shown that to people because I went through a phase where I was like, I love film. Let me show you some of my favorite films. And like sometimes Citizen Kane, I feel like if folks aren't already predisposed to like love film, um, maybe a more modern audience or someone who isn't like already excited about film might not be into it, find it boring or slow or just not like just miss a lot of what is really going on. I mean, I love it not only for all the different techniques that they basically created to make that film, things like racking focus and, you know, just something like that, um, you know, to the to the, the singular vision of Orson Welles. So, you know, watching that in a theater, well, were you already kind of like predisposed to be, you know, were you already like a fan of film and somebody who like wanted, lo- loved the movies, wanted to make movies or whatever it, it might have been? Yeah, that's true. I, I was predisposed in a lot of layers, but I was never really a huge fan of, you know, early 40s movies. Um, and the only black and white stuff that I liked was, you know, pretty obvious things like To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, and so my exposure to films from that era um was kind of limited at that point in my life. Okay. And um, I, I do experience what you've said about older films, you know, trying to expose them to other people a lot um, with the pacing um, and the acting style. But I, I do feel like Citizen Kane connects at, at a pretty good ratio compared to the others, mainly just because it has a pretty good sense of humor. And oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of laugh moments in it, um, and I, I think that transcends eras a bit. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. The, now there's a whole lot in Wells's filmography that is very difficult to uh, to, to to get non-religiously uh, affiliated people into. Yeah, like you know, like what? Tell me like some confidential report, aka Mister Arcaden. There's like six different cuts of it, and it's very nonsensical. Um, the I, I think the most recent uh, version of it, you know, he he was he was so destitute in his production uh, budgets a lot of times late in his career that he would do what is called shooting wild, which is shooting on a camera that cannot properly sync to the soundtrack. So a lot of times he'd be like mouthing things under his breath or other people, and they'd just be out of sync and it looks totally unprofessional. And, you know, various film scholars and restoration people have tried to improve and fix some of that. in some of his other films, Mm -hmm. but in that one in particular, the like low budget nature of it is, is um, it's pretty hard to get through. (laughs) How did you decide um, 
in terms of what films like you wanted to focus on? Like, did you make any? Were they films that you already knew and and enjoyed or uh, appreciated for one reason or another? Or you know, did you like dig into more of the filmography? Maybe things like you know you hadn't been exposed to to try and like and and discover anything about Wells for this project. Um, I had to make some really difficult choices, and what guided me through those choices was mainly what's right for the story. You know, there's a ton of Easter eggs in this project from A to Z issue one to seven, but it's not just an excuse to do Easter eggs. There's an actual universe here with world building and stakes and original characters. And, you know, if it was called Schmorsch and Schmelz and it wasn't about Orson Welles, it would still have a sort of coherent adventure about it. Yeah. Um, so whatever served those moments is what I aimed for. But there were a few that were, you know, non-negotiable. I had to have, you know, a, a handful of them for sure. And like, I mean, Citizen Kane's the obvious one. Right. Another obvious one in the middle is actually one that he didn't direct. One that he was um, just a supporting actor in. Uh, and that's the third man. Uh, but that's okay. such a beloved uh, Wells iconic aspect of his career that I, I just I just had to I had to homage it as well. Right. Did you mainly stick to films that he other than that that he directed? Mostly films he directed. Um and then also there is one thing that's very spoilery, but if you take the totality of of what he's about um you know, he's he arguably was the you know the person of with the most um the biggest radio drama incident in American history he's in the argument for that he's sure. in the argument for the greatest film of all time um and he's also in the argument for the greatest American theater production of all time um his his theater production of Macbeth and um the stage aspect of Wells comes into play in the story as well. Oh, okay. I'll put it that way. All right. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Fair, fair enough. Um, you know, about War of the Worlds, and I don't, I, because I always, you know, the, the, the radio drama, um, you know, when War of the Worlds came out, and you've heard, I've heard, always heard stories about it growing up that like it caused a panic. Like it actually, you know, there were, there were folks that caused a panic or, you know, it, it caused some p- folks to panic. They thought it was an actual newscast rather than the Mercury Theater, you know, radio drama. And um, it's interesting because I, I, I think it was like 10 years ago or so, like NPR did an article that maybe it wasn't really that big of a deal. It was mm-hmm. sensationalized by newspapers to show that radio was unreliable. But I know that um, I've also read interviews where John Landis, who was supposed to work with Orson Welles towards the end of his life talks about it as though, you know, it, it goes back and forth. Like it, it was a big deal. Wells came out and did like an, uh, an apology about what happened, but then in conversations, he would sometimes say it was like overblown. I, I mean, so even this like singular event, there seems what eight now, 80 years later, no consensus <laughs> yeah. on what not only happened in the event, but the aftermath of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I don't have a really confident opinion on where the truth lies other than to say, generally speaking, like the, the NPR piece you talked about 10 years ago, I, I feel that that has entered the sort of the zeitgeist as a bit of an overcorrection. It, it, it feels like most people now have the viewpoint that like there was no panic there. There was just nothing but um, overblown hysteria. But, you know, those of us who have family members um, from that era um, can point to anecdotes of, you know, like my grandparents, they, they thought that the thing was real uh, and they were living in Mississippi. Um, so yeah. um, I, I, I do think it, at the very least, it, it, it scared a lot of people. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I remember my grandmother mentioned it. I mean, she was born in like, you know, 1927. They were big radio people. She used to talk about different radio shows, you know, all the time. Like, I, I mean, one of my earliest memories is her talking about the radio and saying, like, you know, who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. You know, she used to yeah. listen to that. And she said that it 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 caused a panic, you know, uh, where they were in Delaware County and, you know, Delco, a suburb of Philadelphia. You know, I don't know if that's what she really remembered or if she remembered adults talking about it in the newspaper the next day. But, yeah, she talked about it like it was a, a real thing. Yeah. And then after it was over, Congress passed legislation about this. Now, they may have been basing it on, you know, a certain amount of hype and not a lot of substance, but they were sufficiently moved to to realize that, you know, this new nascent medium had dimensions to it that they had not anticipated. Okay. It seems like a good spot to take a quick break. Hey, y'all. Jimmy recently scored me a signed, personalized copy of Hallow's Eve from Erica Schultz after her interview. You've probably had this problem too. I got this great book. Now, how'd I display this thing? Well, I discovered this great product from Crafty Comics that lets you showcase your treasured comics and they even have options for already slab books too. I got their flex frame, which is amazing as you can customize the backing and it even has interchangeable watercolors to coordinate with your space. I opted for neutral gray to match the blue in my room. You can hang portrait or landscape and it comes with a template to make it easy to ensure that you get it exactly where you want it. To my surprise, my wife who tolerates my comic stuff was actually impressed with the overall quality and look. Win! So if you're looking for the perfect solution to showcase your own collection, visit craftycomics.com online. That's crafty with an I. Use the discount code YETI5 and get 5% off your order. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, that, uh, it's just the, the, the whole period is like fascinating in terms of actually doing it, pulling it off. But the idea to present it like uh, a newscast rather than a typical you know, radio drama and just, just that it's still a conversation decades later is kind of fascinating to me. It's just a perfect kind of jumping like off point for the story you're telling here, which is one of the reasons I really loved it. I had the good uh, fortune um, a couple of weeks ago, um, Houston's biggest comic convention, Comic Palooza, happened. And it was my first opportunity to pitch the book to real people, one-to-one. -one. Oh, nice. And I, I got the full spectrum 
of people who instantly knew what the premise was just by looking at the title. As far as like people that were partly familiar with the story um, versus people that didn't know the name. But when I told them the story, um, they were like, oh, yeah, I remember learning that in school. Um, and I even I, I created a visual aid here. Um, I'm going to do a better job of this. Um, but I actually made <laughs> a little uh, demo. Uh, oh, my gosh. New- that's that's awesome for, for I mean for the, the podcast you, you you can't see but it's like a big poster board with you know some of the uh, clips and things uh, are you know made all about what had happened. That's you had that at the convention behind you. Yeah, I had it just ready to go. If if someone didn't know, and some of the some of the younger folks, there there, there was a percentage of them who just had no connection to it at all. And right. uh, they frankly couldn't believe it. Uh, they, they were they were stunned. They were like, "Oh my god, that's so amazing that that happened! I can't believe it." <laughs> so, I I I took a sigh of relief after going through that show because I um, I always underestimated the the potential for this book as far as audience because I thought it was like a niche within a niche within a niche. And at the show, I was just blown away by. The receptiveness, you know, people who had never even heard of Ocean was like, no, I, I, I love that. I got to get that. Yeah, I, I mean, I no, I, I, I get that. I know, I, I understand that. Um, you know, you're dealing like Orson Welles, and I mean, certainly still relevant, but you know, as the comic market, you know, get trends younger, you know, are, are folks going to know who Orson Welles is? Are they going to like care about this book? But uh, I, I mean, I'm going to say that they they should because um, the story you're telling and the artwork in it are are fantastic. But it, it's one of those things that you can get in it. And even if you thought Orson Welles was a totally made up person and you had no idea that Orson Welles was real, like it's a good story. You know, here's a guy who they they play a news as though it's real, but they say it's fake. But well, actually, it's real. And he's in this organization. Like, it just works as a great, like, fun story. And you're going back and forth between, like, a different time period and looking at what happened in, like, the late 30s and throughout. And plus, the great thing is that somebody's going to pick this up and just think, oh, it's a really neat kind of science fiction concept and it seems fun. And they're going to go and they're going to find out about, like, Orson Welles. Like, you're going you're gonna to be the yeah. reason somebody... Is like like one Thanksgiving is just like going off about you know uh, the the intricacies of the different shots and scenes in Citizen Kane. <laughs> that would like be really would be the definition of success. I would love that. Right, right, right. Really glad we took little Carl to the comic convention. Now all he does <laughs> is talk about Citizen Kane and uh, what is it? Trial by jury or. <laughs> Or just the trial. We the trial. Yeah, the trial. We little, right. We put in a little bit. We pepper in a little bit of the trial as well. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, you know, so in t- in, uh, in terms of your taste in in film, is it like does it trend towards more like classics or big director filmographies? Or are your tastes like all over the place? Um. 
you know, as we speak or spoke earlier, I a lot of my understanding of cinema was formed by the opinions of Roger Ebert. Um, and when I disagreed with him, it kind of it almost hurt. Like, what's wrong with you, Roger? You didn't you didn't get it. <laughs> this one was great. Or if he hated something I loved, it just, yeah, it, it didn't work. So, um, you know, a lot of times his top ten lists would be very similar to my top ten lists. Um, you know, I love genre blockbuster stuff um, as much as I love the indie, serious drama, foreign stuff. And um, like, I, I compiled a video of like um, my top twenty-five films of the decade um, of the the tens, and um, I got a lot of grief from some of my hardcore film snob fans. Like, oh my god, you put Mission Impossible on there? Oh my god, you know. But I, I, I love it all. I love it all. Yeah. Um, I, I may be a bit of a film snob here and there, but um, yeah. Um, the thing that's shocking, I don't know if, if you've had this experience, but I'm of an age where, you know, um, one of the bedrock principles of film appreciation was just that the Academy was entirely out of step. And just terrible taste. And the past few years, they've kind of gotten it right. I've agreed with a number of their nominees and some of their winners. I was just ecstatic that Parasite won. It was my favorite film of the year. I never thought I would live to see the day that a film like it would get even nominated, let alone dominate and win. Right. So, so it's kind of weird. Yeah. But was there, you know, some just to touch on some of those things you talked about just now, was there ever, is there anything that, that comes to mind, like that you and Roger Ebert, like really disagreed on that you, you like read his review of something and you thought he got really wrong that, or that, that deeply hurt you, Milton? Well, you know, this is not going to, this is not going to be the best answer, but one that comes immediately to mind was yeah. I really think both Ebert and Siskel missed out on the big Lebowski. They were both such huge lovers of Fargo. And then they came to big Lebowski expecting, I don't know what, and they just felt it was such a poor film in comparison to Fargo. And I, I disagree so strongly with that Lebowski. I know it's become this cult, you know, thing to itself, sure. but you know, it's in my argument as my favorite Coen brothers film. So I think that's probably the one that I disagreed with him most, but okay. I'll get back to you on, on Twitter. Cause that's a really good, that's a good question. I'll, um, I'll, I'll have to, usually with things like that, it's like disagreements in degree. It's like, okay, yeah, that was good, but it didn't deserve to be on your top 10 list or like, why wasn't this on your top, you know, right. Those sorts of things. Yeah. I was just curious if there was anything that was like a, you know, like a big, a big disparity. I mean, I, I, my, I was explaining to my children the other day about like, uh, you know, what it was like watching films before we had every streaming service that the, the world offered. And, um, I mean, I remember when Netflix like first came out, which wasn't that long ago, but, um, you know, and I think I got, I went through AFI's like top 100 to make sure that I had seen everything. Got all the all the DVDs, you know, one by one in the mail, so that I I could make sure I saw everything on the top 100 list. Because I and I, I did that years before with whenever I found like a good list of the films you need to see, you know, 
before the internet when I would go to Blockbuster, the local video rental store, um, just to try and, you know, expand my horizons and see what I, what I liked and, you know, what, what films did they talk about that came before. And it's just funny how tastes in films, you know, change over time. Like there was a period of time where, you know, um, I was watching like everything Martin Scorsese had made and, um, revisiting some of those films now, I, I'm like, yeah, it's a great film, but it's like, I, I don't know why I loved it like so much or thought mm-hmm. it was thought, thought so highly of it. Like, I, I don't even think I could, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't, this is comics podcast, so I don't think film people get on <laughs> me, but I don't think I could go back and I don't think I could even now at 44, like watch Taxi Driver. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. I just, I, but there was when I was younger, there was something I just thought, what a great movie, Martin Scorsese and De Niro and you know, Jodie Foster. And I, but I don't even think I could watch it now. Not that it's a bad film, I just, I just don't think I have any interest. And it's just funny how that I don't know why that changes over time for me. But Citizen Kane is one I still love. Yeah, with, with that lead in, I thought you were going to go deeper with like something like Boxcar Bertha, and I'd be with you there. <laughs> Like, okay, yeah, I don't need to see Boxcar Bertha again. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. Although, um, I do still like the King of Comedy. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an underrated gym. And if I'm not mistaken, my favorite underrated gym of, um, of the Scorsese filmography is about to get a new Criterion edition, and that's After Hours. Did you did you see After Hours? Um, uh, no, I'm trying to think of what, it, what who's in After Hours. It's um oh the guy that was in American Werewolf in London, who's the friend, uh, not the wolf guy, but the one that dies at the beginning. Um, oh, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Um, I'm gonna... he has just this he has this Kafka esque nightmare of night, um, and it's sort of darkly oh. comedic. Yeah, it's uh, Griffin Dunn. Griffin Dunn. Thank you. I'm getting Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, Griffin Dunn's a phenomenal actor. Like, he, yes. he's someone whose name you don't always get, but whenever he shows up in anything. Yeah. Now, yeah, okay. um, I'll share with you after this. I Do you remember there was a Key and Peel bit with um, them uh, exchanging greetings with a president who was essentially like Obama. Um, yes. and the, the level, the level of love he gave to the people, um, and people started using it to like rate things like to right. rate different things. So I, I, I did yeah. that meme and I did the Scorsese filmography. At this really? Oh, okay. Yeah. And there was, <laughs> I made one very controversial choice that made a bunch of people mad. So okay. I, was, I will send you that one. Um, Oh yeah, please but, do. I want to see that. But, Oh, that's that's fantastic. a great way to great way to rank things. Oh, that yeah, that's that's a good one. Um, well, it just I I know we'll get back to comics uh, quickly, but uh, <laughs> I I just because we're on film and um, I I don't get to talk too much about film anymore. Like so, other other than Orson Welles and and that filmography, like is there somebody else that you put up like pretty high in terms of directors and filmographies? I mean, I noticed you have a. Kubrick poster on the wall behind you. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, Kubrick for sure. Um, Kurosawa, really. I mean, 
pretty okay. much it's hard to argue against him being the greatest filmmaker of all time. And I mean, the, the, um, the, the sad thing for me is, um, I sort of pick and choose, um, moments to see certain films. And I had delayed Ikiru, um, for a very long time. And I only saw it for the first time about like four years ago. And it just hit so thunderously hard at a level that I didn't, you know, I didn't think was possible. Um, and, um, you know, the fact that he had that gear on top of all of the like Yakuza stuff. And of course the choreography and the film work and the, the technique he does in all of his samurai films. Um, yeah. 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 He, he's, he's up there among contemporary folks. I mean, it's kind of cliche to say, but Denis Villeneuve um, and Alfonso Cuaron, I think those mm-hmm. guys are like the championship belt contenders right, uh, right there. Um, I'll be looking forward to seeing what Denis does. He's done a lot of like high-profile sci-fi things, and I'm so glad he's doing them because I wouldn't want those in the hands of anyone else. But I, I, I'm curious to see what he he does when he goes back to original stuff mm-hmm. after all of the tools he's learned now. So I, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. What, what does he have? Uh, Dune part two coming up, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think I was just looking on his IMDB, but apparently there's a Cleopatra movie in production. Oh no, I did not know this. Wow. Oh, wow. And that's just, that's just what it says on IMDB. So I guess. In production, so who who knows what that means? You yeah, know. but it, it, I mean, means in terms of whether or not we ever actually see it. <laughs> but, right, right, right. So, um, oh well, well, thank you for that digression into <laughs> uh, the films of uh, Orson Welles, Martin Scorsese, um, and Kurosawa. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, you know, so back to comics and, um. It, it, with this, uh, with Orson Welles, the warrior of the worlds, um, you know, coming out, and uh, are there? Uh, uh, was it difficult in terms of getting it to Scout Comics? Um, was uh, what was that like? Kind of like pitch and like relationship, like been with Scout. That was one of the most fortunate, lucky things that happened in this whole thing. I actually didn't pitch it to them. Um, I initially uh, put it out to Kickstarter. And um, I, I got one bad piece of advice. And I, I keep bothering this one friend of mine. He's a, he's a trusted creator. Um, he whispered in my ear, I was originally just going to kickstart issue one. Okay. And then just do it one issue at a time. Right. And this friend of mine was whispering in my ear like, oh, man. Go for the whole thing. Do do all 10 chapters. Do it all at once. And so I put it up there um, with a with a goal of like fifteen thousand dollars. You know, I had never delivered a Kickstarter before. At that point, I had only had one published comic to my name. Nobody knew who I was. And it was pretty outrageous for me to assume that people would just, you know, fall in love with the premise and throw those dump trucks of money at me. Right. Um, 
So we didn't make the we didn't make the goal. But over the course of, of the campaign, some really cool, amazing people started sharing it around, and somehow it got on the radar of Scout. And after the campaign was over, they emailed me and they're like, "Hey, would you like to do it with us?" I'm like, "Of course, thank yeah." You. <laughs> so yeah. they they revived what seemed to be a dead project, and uh, we're not here without them reaching out and doing that. Right. Wow. Um, you know, I did I did not plan this, but I'm just now realizing that this is the. This is the third podcast episode in a row that I've recorded. It won't be the third in in terms of like getting out there, like publication. But this is the third one in a row I've I think I've recorded where it's a scout book because I interviewed Alex Moore for um, Death Drop Drag Assassin. I interviewed Grant Stoy uh, for Side Quest, and now you for Orson Welles Warrior of the World. So man, Scott Scout is putting out some Scout's putting out. Some of my favorite books, I guess. <laughs> That's great to hear. That's great to hear. Yeah, you're in very good company because. Oh yeah, um, yeah, I'm in very good company. When <laughs> when I first um, got approached, there were there were a handful of creators that I really admire who had books out through Scout. So that that really warmed my heart. I'm a huge fan of uh, the Word Bros, Kevin Cuff and Bob France, yep. the Metal Shark Bros. Mm-hmm. Um, and, great comic. And. Uh, one of my best friends in comics is Dave Chisholm, and he had a book through Scout called Canopus. Um, so I knew I was in good hands when I um, when when the the opportunity came about. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and Dave Chisholm, he did uh, Thompson Heller Detective Interstellar with you, right? Yeah, yeah, he did that with me, and then he vaulted into the comics pantheon <laughs> of the greatest music stuff. Um, he just announced. I don't know if you saw this. But he's doing the official Miles Davis uh, graphic novel, like, yeah, from the estate and all of that oh stuff. So, is that being done with um, with Z two or someone else? Yeah, that that one is being done with Z two. Okay, yeah, they they do a lot of the you know the big music yeah. stuff. That's awesome. Well, yeah. he's the right guy for that. Oh yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, it, it, so. It, Doing a project like this, I mean, seven issues um, and all the work that it goes into it in terms of like writing it. And I'm sure Eric, you know, all the 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 art. Um, I do want to mention the letterer Damon Kane is lettering it. Yes. I worked with him on Thompson Heller Detective Interstellar as well. Um, and so I, I appreciate all the work that Damon is doing on the book. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's been a really Eric has put in uh, just so much work and and there's a little bit he's had to do um above and beyond that I can't really go into full detail on but um we've had um we've had some shifting of some things uh, mm-hmm. a few times and so he's um as I've said before he's not punched me yet so yeah. um well that's so, good and I I was really thankful Eric is a, a man of few words um and he just got the script for issue six um, a few weeks ago. And he he actually had some positive words for it after saying nothing about anything before he at all. He didn't say anything for five issues? For five <laughs> issues. Total pilot. Okay. But then okay. he was like, hey, this one was good. Like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> so that gave, well, that, I, that gave me a lot of confidence 
going I into mean, the finale. I, 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 you know, I said it before, but I really think it like, you know, you talk about shifting things around, but I, it's got to be tough, you know, without a really set, you know, structure, you know, and I, I understand what you said about if this was totally fictionalized, like you kind of have a structure in terms of the timeline of Orson Welles' life, but yeah, I mean, there, there, it would be difficult to kind of, you know, if you didn't have a good t- timeline or a good outline, you know, yeah. uh, I think you could really make a, make a mess of things. Um, yeah. And but we, you're, we still have some weird things happening. where like things that are happening now, finalizing issues six and seven, Right. Or having backwards reverberations in like issue three, and we're we're gonna we're gonna adjust a couple of panels and um, re rearrange some things. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of weird how it's it's all kind of a connected being, um, and it's weird how um, at least in this project we're able to keep evolving um, backwards and forwards. No, oh, yeah. Does Eric, does, does Eric work uh, digitally or does he do anything traditionally? I think he does both, but I think mostly for this one. Um, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn because I've seen him do a lot of stuff uh, traditionally, like when he's at shows doing commissions. Yeah. Um, on this book, I think he I think he pencils on traditional and then inks and colors digitally. But I oh, okay. need to find out the answer to that because... I need, I need to know <laughs> other, other, other podcast hosts will ask you or maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to keep you Milton cause we'll, we'll start talking about more comics or, or, or more films because I'll, you know, pick your brain about, you know, I, I'm, since I've had kids or well, my wife had the kids, but I, I was there for it. Um, but since then the past 10 years, I've like really fallen behind on my, my movie watching. So, Anything that came out after like 2012, um, it's like hit or miss as to whether or not I've seen it. So, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> I always hit up like podcast guests for rec- fil- who like film for film recommendations. I think, I think I did it to poor Frankie White when they were on for uh, around Halloween in terms of horror movies from the last 10 years. I need to see. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Well, I'll I, I owe you two things. I'll send you the Scorsese ranking, and I'll send you my my top 25 of the decade. Yeah, please. So th- there may be a few things in there you hadn't seen. You've probably seen most of them, but. And well, I'll use it as a good, a good barometer to see what, uh, what I, I got to get caught up on. Um, but I, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about Orson Welles, Warrior of the Worlds. I, I just thought it was great. I, I really liked it. I really liked the mystery of it. I kind of like how it, I, I like how it, you know, the first issue really unraveled, um, in terms of Paula and I forget the other character that she's she's with, forgive me, um, as they kind of like investigate what mm-hmm. happened after she learns of of Orson's passing. Um, and I I love Easter eggs. I know it's not like the main point, but I love that type of stuff. And I love that I'm going to be able to read this and then discover some Orson Welles films that I've never seen or been exposed to cool. and uh, kind of look for them Easter eggs. So yeah, I just think it's a great, fun science fiction story it has that like 19 you know 40s feel of those type of films um and yeah i i just thought it was i thought it was great i thought you kind of really captured 
what I know at least of like Orson Welles' voice, which must have been difficult to do. Um, yeah, I thought it was. I, I thought it was a really fun comic. So oh, I wish you, you and that. Eric and the team uh, best of luck. I think it's great. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I really. Uh, so listeners, I really encourage you to go and tell your local comic book shop that you want to get Orson Welles' Warrior Whoa. of the Worlds. <laughs> yeah. Um, it looks fantastic. I'm gonna, I'll put links in the show notes to the previews. Um, I think final order cutoff is probably early July. So you'll want to, right when you're here in this episode, you want to try and let your LCS know because those numbers are important because um, that's how your local comic book shop, if anyone who's listening doesn't know that, determines how many they order, uh, which lets uh, Scout know as to whether or not the series is selling well. And um, yeah, we want to see all seven issues. And uh, I, so I, I really enjoyed it. I think you're going to love it. If you're a science fiction fan, especially if you're an Orson Welles, if you're a film fan, you're really going to dig it. If you haven't seen, you listen to this and you haven't seen Citizen Kane, if you're like, oh, that's a boring black and white film, watch it, please. Sit down in a nice quiet room with no interruptions and, and enjoy Citizen Kane. And it really does have a great sense of humor too, to it too. Um, one of my favorite lines in film where they tell him he's losing a million dollars a year running the paper. And he says, what is it? Uh, oh, at that rate, I'll have to close uh, in 60 or 70 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I really appreciate Milton coming on and talking about Orson Welles' Warrior of the Worlds. Uh, yeah, and first issue August 16th. So um, uh, Milton, thanks a lot. And uh, if you like the podcast, please rate, review us, subscribe, reach out on Twitter. And uh, let me know that you liked the episode. Or look, let me know you didn't. Um, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. I'm very sensitive. (laughs) All right. Uh, uh, Well, thank you very much for listening. Uh, Thank you, Milton. And um, good luck to to Eric. I'm glad he enjoyed uh, issue six. (laughs) At least the script for it. (laughs) And uh, I'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptic Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.